Hey everybody, this is Brent Watkinson with the Everyday Artist Podcast once again. I'm going to start, as I often do, with another quick story. This may or may not have anything to do with the podcast that I do here in a few minutes, but I'd like to tell you a story about the psychology of the way people perceive information. Obviously, not everybody thinks the same way. Uh, Not everybody thinks like me. That's too bad. Not everybody thinks like you. Thank God. I hope you're smiling because that was supposed to be a joke. Anyway, I'm going to tell you a story about four people that heard information and three of them perceived that information about the same way and the fourth person perceived it completely differently and it ended up launching a career because of that. The story I'm referring to is the rock group The Doors, which was founded in 1967. In late 1967, September 17th to be exact, The Doors were to appear on The Ed Sullivan Show. And remember, The Ed Sullivan Show was a powerhouse at making superstars, such as Elvis Presley and The Beatles, who had uh, appeared on that show years before, as did the Rolling Stones. The Doors was a group of musicians, three musicians to be exact, that were jazz musicians. And they got together and thought, we need to make a band. We need to form a band. But they knew they wouldn't make very much money being jazz musicians. And they said, let's play rock and roll. You know, we can, we can do that. So then they set out to find someone that could write lyrics. And they ran across someone who I hope all of you know the name, Jim Morrison. And Jim Morrison became their main lyricist because he was a poet in training. All of these young men were going to school in Southern California at the time. Ray Manzarek played the keyboard and the bass, which means he had a specially designed keyboard in which the lower octaves of his keyboard, which would be his left hand, played two octaves lower than what would normally be on the same keyboard that you would purchase from a store. So he became their bass player and their keyboardist. John Densmore became the drummer, and Robbie Krieger became their guitar player, and of course, Jim Morrison was the main lyricist that was responsible for the amazing lyrics that we know and love today. So now I take you back in time to September 17, 1967, and we're backstage at the Ed Sullivan Show. And 15 minutes before airtime, Ed Sullivan went into the dressing room to see the band, and he told them, you boys look great, but you ought to smile a little bit more. So they got a chuckle out of that, probably. Shortly after that, now remember, we're seven or eight minutes before they're supposed to go live on Sunday evening and be showcased to the entire country, perhaps the world. But a producer from the show came in and told the band they needed to change the lyric girl we couldn't get much higher to girl we couldn't get much better when performing their hit single light my fire and this is because that line might be construed as a reference to the drug world that information coming from the producer is exactly what this story is about today because four young people heard exactly the same sentence told by the same person in the same environment for the same reasons. And three of the band members, Robbie, John, and Ray, were mortified. And they thought, oh my gosh, yeah, Jim, be sure and do that. 
Uh, do you need to rehearse it a little bit? You know, get it out of your mouth, you know, go through it in your head, sing it for us. How are you going to do it? And Jim just looked at them and said, I'm not going to do that. And of course they were petrified. They really wanted to make good on their uh, network television debut. So three people heard those instructions and thought, yes, we must do that. Let's carry that out the way they described. Jim says, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to sacrifice this song and the meaning of the lyrics that I wrote just for that reason. And Ray, uh, usually the, the cooler head, went up to Jim and said, hey, Jim, if you don't sing that lyric the way they want you to, we will never be on this show again. And at that point, Jim turned to Ray and the other two members of the band, and he said, if I don't change the words and I sing it the way it was originally written, we will never have to be on this show again. That is the crux of this story. Three people heard that information and determined what they thought they could do to be better and to go forward and Jim saw that information completely differently and again he said hey if I sing it my way right we'll never be on this show again but we will never have to be on this show again and he was correct uh, that really launched their career and they went on and did other albums and other recordings until 1971 on July 3rd when Jim Morrison committed suicide in Paris. And I'm sure you can look up all the information that you want to about that. I could sit here and tell stories about the Doors all day long. After the death of Jim Morrison, the trio went on to record two more albums together and eventually made an instrumental that was the backdrop for the late singer's recorded poetry. All right, let's get into it. Let's talk a little bit today about reference, using reference material, reference images, reference photography in producing an image. Early in my career as an illustrator, I needed to use reference material. Most of it, I tried to photograph or produce myself. In other words, if I was doing a magazine cover for Cook's Illustrated, for an example, I would get the products, I would look at the type of product that it was, I would look at the month that the magazine was coming out, and I would shop for materials or plates, saucers, cups, what have you, that would go with all of those things I just mentioned, and maybe uh, fabrics or placemats, whatever. And then I would build a set, and I would draw from that still life that I set up, because compositional mistakes were always much easier to see when I was actually drawing in my sketchbook. If I just looked through the lens of my camera, and remember, I was working with perishable items, some of which were Concord grapes that I had shipped to me from the East Coast. In preparation of receiving those Concord grapes, because I could not get them where I was living at the time, they were shipped to me in dry ice, and while I was waiting on that delivery, I did all of the preliminary set building. I got the colors together that I wanted in terms of fabrics and uh, bowls or vessels that I could put those grapes in. And when I got the grapes early morning by FedEx and unpacked the grapes out of the dry ice, put them in the bowl, 
and I did a couple of drawings and I thought, you know what? I just have this creepy feeling. So I started snapping photographs and I'd move the grapes. I'd snap a photograph. I'd do this. I'd move the lights. I did everything that I normally did except at a uh, faster pace. And I'm glad I did that because I probably worked with the product about maybe five minutes and then all of those grapes split open. There was something that had happened during shipment or the temperature change, whatever. Maybe I had mishandled them, but I had my reference and I had some sketches. So back to what I would originally do is I would put out the product and I would start moving things around. I was using all the rules of composition that I knew about and tried to make pleasing compositions. And again, the main thing that I stress here is that I was drawing that composition first before I started taking photography. The reason I used photography was because just like those grapes, just like using apples or papayas or whatever that may have been sliced open uh, to make the image a little bit more interesting, those fruits and vegetables were not going to last very long. They weren't going to look pretty very long at a time. So that's why I depended on photography. I actually uh, got to be pretty good at photography. And thanks to a mentor that I had, that one of the first jobs that I had in um, the big city, as I like to say when I came to make my fortune, was an actual photographer that was um, trained at Brooks Institute in Santa Barbara, California. So this person had lots of technical information and a lot of artistic information about what makes good photography. So I was producing my own reference on, I think, a really good scale. And I ended up teaching a lot of classes about reference photography. I taught uh, photography for illustrators for a while, and I would always interject that into my classroom uh, because I, I knew that it was important. I felt that it was very important that uh, people produced their own reference. The last thing you'd want to do is steal reference from someone. You don't want to uh, infringe on people's copyrights. And as a matter of fact, that's one of the last bastions of American law that is still upheld. Um, you don't want to mess with someone's copyright. So producing your own image became the smart and safe thing to do. They've even changed recently uh, the idea of if you borrowed reference from someone or something you find on the internet, you used to, you could safely use it if you changed it enough ways. Now I'm not even sure if that uh, still holds true. So be careful if you're out there borrowing reference. Uh, you need to get permission for it, or better yet, just get your own reference. Now, if you're living on the coast of Florida and you have to do a painting of mountains for an illustration, then you're not going to be able to get on a plane and fly to Colorado. Uh, so you are going to have to use books or the internet and find references. And that's the key word here, reference. You are supposed to refer to these images. You're not supposed to copy them. In other words, if you're supposed to do a portrait of someone, put together as many images of that person's face as you can and read about them, find out about their 
their actions, their thoughts, their attitudes, and then you refer to all of those other images to make something that's your own. So now you've done all your preliminary work and you have this beautiful reference that you will now refer to. That is really difficult for a lot of people to do, especially students. It's to refer to these images and like I said before, not to copy them. It's very difficult not to fall in love with this reference or get ensnared by this reference. And it's hard to divorce yourself from making whatever you're working on look just like the image that you're referring to. There's something about ego, I think. Hey, look, I can, I can make this look exactly like what I'm looking at. It's kind of a dog and pony show. Who cares? Make it your own. You have to interject your own personal point of view, which is another show in itself. The personal point of view. Why should somebody hire you? Why do they need to have your work? What is happening in your brain, in your head, the way you see things and solve problems and interpret the world? That is your personal point of view. So you constantly have to address this challenge of making your reference work your reference and not something that you copy. Here's another example. There are people that love to go out and paint in the open air, plein air painting, as it's referred to. There are many people that do that beautifully well. I was never good at that, and I really wasn't that interested in it, so I didn't apply myself very much. But I do know a lot of people that are standing in front of a beautiful scene and they can't make themselves change it for compositional or color or atmospheric reasons. You need to take control of your image. You have to own it. It's yours. If it's really good, you get the accolades for it. If it's bad, then you have to take the rap for it. But what I mean by taking control of your image is you need to make decisions based on strengths and information and your personal point of view to make sure your image is yours. You don't need to copy nature, although nature is the most fabulous teacher of all. We can all look at nature and refer to nature as a great instructor. So if you are a plein air painter, you have to find your composition, find the scene that you're interested in, and then figure out how to make the actual picture work. Nobody cares what you're looking at later. If they're walking through a gallery, nobody's going to say, you know what, this tree line wasn't that tall out in nature. Nobody knows that. Nobody cares. So if you have to make the tree line taller for compositional or interest reasons, then do it. There's not a problem with changing what you're looking at. Same thing, if I snapped a photograph of this beautiful scene and I gave it to you and said, here, paint this. I would rather you interpret this and make it your own. Can you improve upon certain natural occurrences? Yes, of course. Maybe there's no clouds in the sky. Maybe you put this fabulous thunderhead that really becomes the crux of the painting. What if I gave you a photograph that was 90% land and a little sliver of sky? What if you decided, hey, I'm going to put this great sky reference in that I have, and that's really going to showcase this little bit of land that I'm going to shrink down to the bottom. 
So there are no rules except make your picture work. When I started doing a lot of landscapes for different galleries, I was driving around trying to sketch or draw and ultimately photograph interesting compositions that I found out in nature. Well, that was a beast. That was a burden because I was trying to feed this never-ending reference machine. And when you live in one place and you can't fly around the world or the country and go find interesting things, all of a sudden it becomes this finite problem of finding interesting compositions and shapes in your local area. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm just saying it becomes limiting because it limits how far you can go out and what you can do with the type of topography that you're looking at at the time. So my solution to that at one point was I thought I need to do some cityscapes of where I'm living at the time. So I went underneath a local bridge on a huge river that runs through our beautiful city and I was looking for compositions. Well, I didn't find very many good ones, but I thought, okay, I'm going to take this photo as a reference because it's good light. It is a good composition. There's a good uh, value pattern here that I can deal with, but it really doesn't look like this city. So I turned my camera a little bit and took some images of the skyline that was very indicative of this city. So I go back to the studio and I magically put those buildings where they could be seen in this other composition. I moved the city about a mile, maybe half a mile. I did the painting because I referred to both of these images and I did many of those and I called them romanticized landscapes. No one ever knew the difference. I sold every single one I did. Nobody cared that perhaps in reality, these buildings could not be seen from that exact vantage point. So now all of a sudden I gave myself permission to redesign the world and to make interesting pictures that were based in reality, but I had to move things and help the composition along. So that was a real eye opener. And then I started taking it a step further because at that point I thought, well, if I can redesign things that I'm looking at, maybe I can just start designing my own landscapes. And there are several people in the country, in the world that do that very thing with landscapes. They don't have anything to look at per se. They just design the pictures. They design thumbnails. They start small and start drawing black and white and gray images using blocks of things that look like trees or clouds or fields or bridges, what have you. So they just get an idea of what they would like to paint and then they would simply design that picture. At that point, it just becomes an exercise in executing the painting based on your design because that's what most paintings are anyway, building blocks of value and color that make the picture work as a composition. As I was doing more and more of these paintings in galleries, uh, I would go to uh, a 
one person show or a group show and somebody would always invariably come up to me and say, wow, I love this painting. Is this Ohio? And I would of course say, yes, of course it's Ohio. Sure. And then the next person would come up and look at the same painting and say, wow, that looks like Delaware where I grew up. Is this Delaware? Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Of course it's Delaware. It's, it's obvious that it's Delaware. You are correct. I wasn't lying to these people, but in their mind, they perceived something about these images that reminded them of a certain place. And that's all an artist is trying to do, evoke an emotional response. If I did a group of paintings in which people were not interested in looking at them and did not evoke an emotional response, then I have not done my job well. And believe me, I have done many of those paintings in my lifetime. And I think that brings us back to the story of the band The Doors that I told to open this show. And that is, many people can see information or hear information in the exact same time and place and environment, and they can perceive it completely differently. And that doesn't make one correct and one incorrect. It just means we all see, think, and hear in our own unique, wonderful way. And that leads to our personal point of view, whether you are an artist or not. Look around on social media. You will see people displaying their personal point of views in many ways. I used reference a lot, and I thought about reference a lot. I endeavored to use reference to the best of my abilities and to the best of my image making and career. It didn't come to me easily. I had to think a lot about it as far as back in my career, trying to figure out what to do and what direction to go. And remember, no one cared about my career except me. My reps did not care. Reps, representatives, agents, whatever you like to call them. The galleries didn't care. No one cared about my career but me. That's why you, as an artist of any type, whether you are a sculptor or a chef, or a dancer, or writing the great American novel. You need to take control of your work and make it yours. Now let's get out in the real world and do something worthwhile.